Well, good morning. Leadership matters. It's a rather uncontroversial statement, or at least I think it is, if 15 votes in the House of Representatives for the Speaker, the leader of the House, a record since the Civil War, is any indication. Whether it's in the church, whether it's outside the church, there seems to be a general recognition that leaders and leadership is important. It matters. Bad or failed leadership, especially from those whom we have grown to trust, has devastating consequences. One of the greatest military disasters in history happened in the hands of a person considered to be one of the greatest of military leaders. Napoleon Bonaparte, Emperor of France, Master of Europe, set his eyes on conquering Russia. And on June 14, 1812, Napoleon crossed the Niemen River to begin his invasion. The invasion force that Napoleon brought with him what he mustered in for his campaign against Russia was one of the largest expeditionary forces that had ever been assembled up till that time. With over 685,000 men from France and Germany, he entered Russia. But Napoleon's failures manifested themselves quickly, falsely believing the Russians would deploy their army in a single conclusive battle as soon as he entered Russian territory, they instead withdrew deeper into Russian territory. And as they withdrew deeper, and as they retreated, they would destroy their own crops and their own buildings and their own cities. Meaning that when Napoleon and his army showed up, there was nothing to feed them, nothing to sustain them, nothing to provide for them. And even though Napoleon eventually managed to seize Moscow, it was a hollow victory because even the capital had been destroyed by the withdrawing Russian army. After waiting in vain for Emperor Alexander I of Russia to surrender, Napoleon began his retreat from Moscow back to France. And as winter approached, the snows slowed the French army. Soldiers were suffering from cold, starvation, desertion. And all the, while, all the while, the Russians were continuing to harass the retreating forces. In fact, Napoleon only barely, almost miraculously, managed to break through the enemy Russian lines and even bring back the tattered remains of his once massive army. Before years in, the original forces of 685,000 had suffered over 500,000 casualties. It goes down in history as one of the greatest military blunders and disasters ever to happen, costing the lives of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and countless civilians, all because of failed leadership. History is replete with the consequences that arise from bad or failed leadership, and the church is not immune to this experience. One of the things we're doing here at the start of 2023 is we're spending the first few weeks considering the roles, the responsibilities, and the expectations of leaders in the church. And we're doing this for a variety of reasons. One, it's good to remind ourselves of these things from time to time. Humans tend to suffer from both forgetfulness and complacency. And as every parent knows, we're born with this affliction. So reminders are helpful and they are necessary. 
More specifically, the church at large has frequently suffered at the hands of leaders throughout her history, and the past few years have been no exception. As we've witnessed the fall of many celebrity pastors and church leaders, as well as local church elders and pastors who have done great harm to both their local congregations and to the testimony of the church at large in the world. More specifically still, Canton Bible is just starting its fifth year as a local gathering of believers. And it's important that we lay a strong foundation on the expectations we have for those who will lead this church and this local body. Finally, and most specifically, we were evaluating placing a new man into leadership in the next several weeks. This is a weighty task, and we want to follow Scripture's instruction in evaluating the type of man that is affirmed as an elder, as a leader, as a shepherd here at Canton Bible. And so for these reasons, we believe it wise and judicious to take a few weeks to study anew Scripture's teaching concerning leaders in the church. Well, pray with me if you will, and we'll jump into our study this morning. Father, we thank you for this new year. We thank you for this body, for being able to gather together this morning to sing your praises, to worship your name, to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ taking on human flesh, humbling himself, giving us a pattern to follow. But more than that, he humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin for us. And Father, that's what brings us together this morning, no matter our backgrounds, no matter our differences, no matter the pains, the sufferings, the frustrations, the anxieties, the difficulties of life, that is what brings us here together this morning. Pray that you would help guide our time as we turn our focus to this topic of leadership, an important topic in the life of the church, a critical topic. But Father, one in which you did not leave us wondering or without direction. May we be faithful to draw from the well of your word in seeking to find that direction. May we be faithful students, faithful disciples, as we seek to live out and apply your word. In your name, amen. Well, last week we began this study at a very high level as we started by reminding ourselves of the church, the significance of the church, the importance of the church, her organization and her leaders. And we identified three terms that are used for leaders of the church in the New Testament. Now, there's three terms, but they all refer to the same person while emphasizing different characteristics or facets of their roles and responsibilities. Those terms you may remember are elder, overseer, and pastor, or shepherd, pastor being the Latin term for a shepherd. And as we noted last week, of these three terms, pastor or shepherd is perhaps the most neglected, at least when talking about leadership. But as we also determined last week, we're going to use the concept, the understanding of a shepherd as the lens, the glasses through which we study, we read, and we apply this teaching that Scripture has on leadership. The goal of our 
next few weeks is to identify biblical qualifications of the elder, the overseer, the pastor. And while we could very easily spend half a year or more going into greater depth and detail, our goal will be to provide a fairly succinct but clear understanding and expectation of one being considered for leadership in the church. As well as, and this is important, as well as an ongoing evaluation of those who are already leaders. It doesn't stop. Your responsibility as a body, as the body of Christ, to evaluate, to hold leaders accountable, to have an expectation of leaders doesn't end once they're made a leader. So Pastor Jack Hughes once noted, elders must be servant leaders who lead by example, that are gifted for the office of elder, trained and possess the necessary godly character. And this is important. He also notes, before being appointed as elders or leaders of Christ's church. So while we certainly expect elders and shepherds to continue to grow in their maturity, in their wisdom, and in the ways in which they manifest these characteristics, leadership, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, that position is not the sandbox to learn these things. So we are discussing what a man must be before he is a leader of the church, before he's appointed to be a leader of the church. However, and this is also important, the goal is not criticism, but encouragement. No person will perfectly embody every characteristic. But here's what's important. They must not be wholly deficient in any one area either. In other words, while the extent to which they display each of these qualifications may vary, they cannot be lacking or without any of one of these characteristics in their life and must be demonstrating effort and diligence in growing in all of these areas. Likewise, humble and receptive to feedback. In addition, apart from the necessity of displaying these qualifications, these characteristics we'll begin looking at, the extent to which they are displayed, and the level of maturity needed is going to vary from local church to local church. For example, a newly planted church in Southeast Asia, Africa, someplace where there has been no other established body of believers is going to have a very different expectation about the maturity of its leaders compared to one maybe in Europe or here in the U.S. or many other places of the world that is, has a legacy that is multi-generational. But all are to be growing and to be maturing. But this is why it's so necessary as well for the members of the local church to be involved in the selecting, the evaluating of the men who lead the church, both before and again, as well as after they are called as an elder, an overseer, or a shepherd, pastor. We noted last week the two texts we're going to be using in this evaluation. The two primary texts, although they're not the exclusive text in the New Testament that speak to leaders in the church. And those two texts, you may remember, are 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 and Titus 1, 5-9. You can go ahead and begin turning to 1 Timothy 3. But before I jump in, I want to read one other shorter text. It's one we ended, or nearly ended, our time together in last week, and it's 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. 
And you can just listen as I read it to you as you're turning to 1 Timothy or have already turned there. Because this really provides the lens or the glasses through which we are doing this evaluation. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock. The flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. These again are our glasses, our shepherd glasses, that I want us to put on each week as we look at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You may want to, just because of how much turning back and forth we're going to do in the weeks ahead, bookmark these two passages, stick a piece of paper in each one, some way of identifying them. Because we're going to do a lot of flipping back and forth. But I want to read here both passages in full. And I want to do that to give you an impression One of the things Jonathan Edwards once noted about preaching is it's not so much remembering every single word that is preached and taught, but the impression that is left upon the hearts and the minds that then results in action. I think there's a benefit sometimes in just being impressed. We read in 1 Timothy 3. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he manage or take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil? And he must have a good reputation with those outside, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Take a right in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Just a few pages over. First three verses are Paul's greeting to Titus and to the churches there in Crete. And then he begins with specific instruction to Titus. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Well, great, but how do I know if they are an elder? Well, he gives a list. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both, both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. 
for the accountants in the room who were quickly counting up all of those different qualifications, if you account for the overlapping of a few of those qualifications, there are at least 27 unique descriptions, characteristics, qualities, expectations of a leader of the church. And while this is an extensive list, understand this, it's still not exhaustive. This is the minimum, bare minimum qualifications. But this does a tremendous job of painting in our mind's eye the type of person or persons who are to lead the church, what these elders, these shepherds, these overseers look like. I want you to imagine for a moment that we have up here a rough, freshly hewn slab of rock. Over the next few weeks, we're going to sculpt this slab into the image of a shepherd of the church. As we let the word of God direct our hammer and our chisel, it's going to shape our thinking and expectations to be in line with what God desires from leaders and shepherds of the church. That's what we want to shape. That's what we're trying to create over these few weeks. But we want to do it by letting God's word hammer and chisel out what that shepherd looks like and should reflect. Well, 1 Timothy 3.1 is really the perfect place to begin. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, reveals that the desire to lead and shepherd the church, the work or the task that he desires in doing this, it is good, or some of your translations may say it is noble. It is a good, it is a noble task. Now, I want to say something really quick for all of you who are not aspiring to be elders and shepherds. Notice that he does not say it is the most noble, or the best work that a person can do. As if you're somehow failing if you pursue any other task, or you're somehow falling short. Or that the one who serves with the gift of mercy, or the gift of hospitality, or the gift of evangelism is somehow performing a lesser work. See, not every person is called to be an elder shepherd of the church. That seems rather self-evident. Your calling Maybe something else. Vocationally, it may be a mother, it may be a teacher, maybe a doctor, maybe a lawyer, maybe an engineer, a plumber, an accountant, or yes, even an IRS agent. But wherever God has placed you, it is good and right that you seek to employ your spiritual gifting to the utmost for the building up of the church. But I think it's Unique. I think it's necessary that Paul lets us know, lets those who aspire to lead the church know that it is still a good and noble task to want to shepherd the church. Now, why would he have to say that? Why would he have to clarify that this is a good, it's not the most good, the most noble task. It's incredibly important. It's absolutely essential to the church, no denying that. But why does he have to make sure we understand it's okay, it's a good and noble task? Well, I think it's possible that in the midst of the calls, the admonition for humility, of the first becoming last, of the rebuke we saw in our study of Matthew to the disciples for desiring to be first and to be greatest, that Paul has to provide a little bit of a counterbalance, pull the pendulum in the other direction, and say that to desire to serve as a leader of the church is good and noble work. Just because we are to be humble, 
Just because leaders are not to lord it over does not mean it is a bad or somehow a dirty work to want to lead and to want to shepherd the church. But I think he has to illustrate how different it is. But at the forefront, he wants to say it's good, it's right, it is noble to want to do this. Just as good, just as noble as any other work the Lord has called a believer to. But it's different. It is radically different from any other office of leadership you're going to see in the world around you. It does not involve that lording over them that Christ condemned in Matthew 20, 25, and as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 that we've already read. And that's what these, uh, these 26 other qualities and characteristics will reveal. This is also what the shepherding glasses that we put on help us to see. Because remember, the man desiring to be an elder is desiring, again, to be a shepherd, or he should be. He's not desiring to be a king. He's not desiring to be a ruler. He's not desiring to be the one in charge. He is desiring to be a shepherd. Desiring any form of leadership, any form or position of authority that is not bound up in the concept of a shepherd is immediately disqualifying. But there's a lot bound up in this idea of a desire. And what goes in to a desire? It's something that we often refer to as the calling, a, a calling a man might have to ministry or to lead. It's funny how our Christian lingo confuses our theology sometimes. We talk about one being called to ministry. The reality is we're all called to ministry. But we know what we mean. We're talking about that specific call of one to pastor, to shepherd, to lead the church. There's been a lot of teaching on what this calling should look like. What does it mean? How real is it? How mystical is it? How much of a feeling versus something that's concrete and real? I appreciate what Martin Lloyd-Jones does when he helps note six characteristics of the calling to pastoring. I'll spend a few minutes going over these. The first that he describes is this inner compulsion. And this is usually observed in the desire, the expressed desire of a person to shepherd. It's the wanting. More than that, it's something that's almost automatic in their life. They can't help but shepherd. They can't help but serve. They can't help but provide for the body of Christ. It may not necessarily be expressed in wanting to lead or be in charge, which is okay. But it's expressed in caring for, looking after the needs of, feeding the people of God. So much so that it, it is just automatic. It's going to happen in their life. You can't shut it off. It's who they are. But that's not all. He then says there also needs to be an outside influence. Here we begin to see that affirmation of others. Those who come alongside or having observed can affirm the giftings, the qualifications of a shepherd of Christ's church. And this, this outside influence, this observation, this exhortation, it, it's more than just finding someone that's a good teacher. You understand that, right? And all that we've been saying, all we've been describing, it's more than just a good teacher. There are many teachers who do not make good shepherds. 
It's not to say they should not teach. Let them teach. We want them teaching. But don't let them shepherd or you're going to have bruised and battered sheep. A good teacher is not an automatic sign of a good shepherd. Or to put it into a syllogism, all good shepherds are teachers. But not all teachers are shepherds. But there should be this outside influence, this outside observation, this this coming alongside, this affirming of the giftings, the helping building up of the giftings of one who demonstrates this calling, this desire for shepherding. There's another thing you should be able to observe in such a person, and Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it as loving concern. This calling, this desire will be seen in the loving concern that a person has to shepherd the people of God and how they demonstrate it. It'll be a concern both for the physical and spiritual needs of their fellow brothers and sisters. They're going to feel a desire to meet those needs. They're going to demonstrate a desire to want to meet those needs. Either they themselves are overseeing and orchestrating the meeting of the needs by others. There's likewise going to be a loving concern for the lost. Beware of the shepherd who shows and demonstrates no concern for the lost. For those who do not yet know the grace and the mercy of of God, those who are living under the daily threat of eternal suffering, they feel that weight. And they're not content to just sit there doing nothing about it. Next, Lloyd-Jones identifies an overwhelming constraint. It's a little bit archaic in its language, so what does he mean? Well, he describes that Even though he could do other things, he feels constrained to shepherd and serve the local body of believers. Not out of, you know, despondency, but out of joy. It's constrained by joy, you might even say. Spurgeon would tell these aspiring pastors, he would meet with these men as they would come in. He had an interesting list of qualifications. Not all of them, I think, are biblical. For example, I'll just share an anecdote. He said that... uh, if you were prone to sore throats and had to wear a, uh, a scarf around your neck, you probably were not called to preaching. If uh, He had a number of other examples. If your voice was not strong, you were not called to shepherd and lead the church. But this one I think he got right. He told aspiring pastors, if you can do anything else, do it. If you can stay out of the ministry, stay out of the ministry. And again, by that he means that specific ministry, that specific call, not stay out of ministering in the body, but stay out of the call to be an elder, a pastor, an overseer, a shepherd. There should be this constraint, this desire to serve and to minister to the body. But for the one who desires and is called and truly called to ministry, they are going to find a way to minister. Whatever it takes, whatever personal sacrifice is required, they will do it. They're not going to sit around waiting for the perfect opportunity to present itself. They're going to make opportunities. In describing the call to proclaim the word of God and shepherd the people of of Israel, Jeremiah described this constraint. He said in Jeremiah 29, But if I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I become weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. 
Lloyd-Jones adds to the first four a fifth characteristic of a man calling and desiring the work of a shepherd. And that is sobering humility. The man who is called by God is a man who realizes what he is called to do. And he so real, realizes the awfulness of the task, Lloyd-Jones says, that he shrinks from it. I appreciate what one of the elders of Community Bible Church, church just a little bit south of us, once said when he described becoming an elder. He said he perspired as much as he aspired to be an elder. And I like that. Because he's acknowledging there is a sobering element of nervousness, of anxiety, that accompanies this aspiration and this desire. This humility might, by some, be mistaken as the opposite of desiring or aspiring to do the work of shepherding. But don't let this holy fear confuse you. You may find a man who shudders at the task, but whose actions continually demonstrate amidst the body a clear call to shepherd. Don't let someone's recognition of the seriousness of the task make you think they're not aspiring for it or desiring it. Look at their actions. Look at their deeds. This is not someone who does not desire to serve as a shepherd. They're already doing it. This is someone who rightly understands the seriousness of serving the people of God. In closing out his list, Lloyd-Jones identified, sixthly, a corporate confirmation. He describes this as a testing followed by confirming of a local body. This testing is not just a one-hour sit-down, take a test, and everybody gets to watch you. This is a testing of the life, of the character of the person. Observing how did they respond circumstances. How did they respond when they didn't get what they wanted? How did they handle this objection? How did they handle shepherding in this scenario? It's an opportunity to evaluate, to measure the man. To measure him specifically against the qualifications and expectations of Scripture, just as we're looking to do right now. And upon measuring the man and finding him to demonstrate these qualities, the qualities of a shepherd of the church that we're going to pour through, the local body should affirm and commission such a man. In fact, that's their responsibility. They become negligent if they don't do such a thing. Now, with this, there's also several practical implications that come into play with the list as a whole, but specifically when you get to the end and there needs to be this corporate confirmation. One, it means that congregation must be able to get to know the person. It must have time to demonstrate a pattern of shepherding so that the local body can affirm this desire in all these different ways in which it is manifested. And because of this, I would argue that it's best and preferable, though not always possible, for leaders to come from within the local body or to have spent sufficient time living amongst the local body. And there's likewise this responsibility that falls on each of you to recognize persons who have this desire and calling and to encourage them and to affirm them in this. Well, you probably noticed the time and begun to panic a bit, wondering how I intend to keep how long I intend to keep you this morning. We've got a list of 27 qualifications, and we've spent 30 minutes on the first. You needn't worry. We're going to 
We're not going to look any further this morning. We're going to go slow here at the beginning so that we can push hard and fast in the weeks ahead. But we need to lay a firm and solid foundation. We need the concrete to set before we go fast. We'll begin looking next week at these 26 following qualifications and continuing to chisel away at this sculptor, the sculptor of of a shepherd of the church so that we might have a pattern for rightly evaluating our current and future leaders. But before we finish, I need you to take off your glasses or those shepherding glasses. We've been talking about the desire and the calling of a shepherd this morning. But I have a question for each of you, one that each of you needs to answer if you are a member of the body of Christ. And the question is, what is your desire and call? What is the specific desire you have in serving the local church body in this community? And are you doing it? If you are called to show hospitality, are you doing that? Perhaps the Holy Spirit has brought you to this local assembly to demonstrate mercy. Are you doing it? Do you have a desire for evangelism and proclaiming the gospel to those in our community who flirt each day with the horrors of hell? One thing we're going to continue to come back to each week is the responsibility that we all have in the body of Christ. This is not a time for you to sit back and relax just because we're talking about leaders and spending so much time talking about leaders. Because the Bible knows nothing of this lay clergy distinction that so permeates the church today. Many of our churches today would feel like an alien planet if early Christians were to walk through the doors. The idea that the work of ministry is farmed out to those who are paid to do ministry full time or only those who are called to shepherd and lead would utterly confuse early Christians. The apostles would be baffled, wondering how we got to such a place. At no time during our study of leadership qualifications should you be thinking that the ministry of the church is only for those desiring to shepherd and lead. In fact, our belief in the biblical teaching of what is called the priesthood of all believers, that is, we are all ministers, we are all saints, we are all called, along with the teaching that the Holy Spirit gifts, equips, and empowers each individual, not the church as a whole, but each individual within the church to minister to the church and to the body. Means that every single one of us is called to full time ministry where the Lord has placed you, where the Holy Spirit has directed you and carried you. And so the question again for you this morning is what is your calling? Where are your desires and how are you pursuing them? How are you loving the church of Jesus Christ? If you're not sure, then I have some homework for you. I want you to make it your daily prayer this week. To pray that the Holy Spirit would enliven you to the work of ministry. To love for the body and a desire to serve with the gifts you have already. If you are a true believer, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the gifts you have already been given. In other words, you're not waiting for something to start. It's really a prayer all of us can pray that we would be earnest in our ministry, 
faithful in our ministry, that we, as well as those who shepherd us, might hear at the end of this life, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of the seriousness of the task, the task of leading and shepherding your body. Father, I pray that we as a church would take this very seriously as we look to put into place and to encourage, come alongside our existing leaders. Pray that you would likewise create and instill within each of us an understanding and a recognition that we are all ministers of the body of Jesus Christ. That we are all to be ministering to one another. That we have all been given gifts. Father, would we not quench the Holy Spirit by whom we have been sealed for that glorious day of redemption, but would we live out our gifts with one another? Would we demonstrate the love of your Spirit to one another? Pray this in your name. Amen.